0: Welcome to the Becker's Spine and Orthopedic Review Podcast. I'm Laura Deirda, Editor-in-Chief of Becker's ASC Review and Becker's Spine Review, and I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Brian Gantworker, founder of the Craniospinal Center of Los Angeles. Dr. Gantworker, could you please introduce yourself and share a little bit about your background?
1: Sure. I'm Dr. Brian Gantwerker. Uh, I'm a uh, board-certified neurosurgeon with a complex spine fellowship, I've been in practice approximately 10 years, and uh, our practice was founded in uh, early uh, 2011, and um, we've been going ever since here in Greater Los Angeles. I began my training in 2001 at Case Western, um, and finished my residency in neurosurgery in 2008, and then I did a Complex Spine Fellowship at the Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona from 2008 to 2009.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Gantwerker. I know it's always a pleasure to speak with you and connect, and you're a great leader in the field, so we appreciate it.
1: Thanks. You're very welcome.
0: Uh, well, first off, I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about where your practice is today and how it's changed since the pandemic began.
1: Well, the practice today looks very different from the way it started. Um, nine almost ten years ago now the pandemic has wrought a lot of chaos but i think out of chaos has come some good things for a very long time uh, we have been talking about implementing telehealth in a lot of our visits when my wife helena and i first started and practiced together uh, it was just the two of us we were running it out of uh, essentially a part-time office and files and just complete chaos is the way it started so this was sort of a shaking us back to our ground our our grassroots um, really really just a seismic change Um, we had to obviously uh, cut back on hours for our staff and not seeing patients in person and not doing anything but urgent surgeries really sort of changed the financial and really the makeup of our practice for the most part. And we're still kind of getting back on track and on balance for that. But what it did force us to do was to implement telehealth. And that's been great for us. And we're grateful that our patients have been so adaptable to doing that. Even our older patients have been fantastic. Um, and when we haven't been able to use telehealth, we we'll use FaceTime. Um, That's been um, really a game changer for me in terms of using my time in a more efficient fashion. For instance, um, the second or third post-op appointments can often be done telehealth. Uh, Even some of our initial consults are being done telehealth, but really if a patient needs surgery, they they have to come in. They have to get a physical exam. The other thing that I just launched two days ago is a uh, second opinion function on our website, an opportunity for patients who live in the state of California to submit their MRIs and CTs and X-rays to me for a second opinion, if they've been told they need to have spine surgery and and part of our telehealth package is gonna be used to that. Um, So we're really excited about that. So really what we're trying to do is trying to get um, um, uh, a transformation of the way the business is gonna work. Um, What's not certain is how the flow of patients will come once the pandemic hopefully um, is either um, under control or we have a vaccine or um, the patient, really populations feel comfortable about coming into the office again. So that remains to be seen. Um, but the way it looks now is very, very different from the way it started nine or 10 years ago. And I think it, there's lessons to be learned in in time management and efficiency, and certainly in the way we can keep patients safe and they get their necessary services.
0: Got it. And where do you see your practice headed in the next 18 to 24 months? Obviously, as you mentioned, it'll be interesting to see how patients return and what their comfort level is. But what do you anticipate will be different and what do you think will be in the same?
1: Well, the glass half full um, part of me says that it's going to be better. Um, It's going to a lot of new patients will come. And and, um, because of the second opinion site and other things that I'm doing, they'll find our way to our practice glass half-empty guy in me says that there is most likely going to be a shuffling of the board. Um, And I think that's just because a lot of doctors, some doctors, I should say, are retiring because of COVID. Um, People who are sort of on the bubble, older practitioners whom I work with a lot may be retiring or just giving up their practices altogether. Um, I think the realistic part of me, though says that a little of both is going to change. Um, Referral patterns are going to be shuffled around But I think there's gonna be new opportunities for patients to find us. um, And I think they'll still be looking for high quality neurosurgeons, people who spend time with them. Um, In 18 to 24 months, I think on a global scale, um, at least for spine and neurosurgery, we will actually have to be somewhat dependent on what happens with Congress. Um, We were on a phone call last night with Representative Dr. Ami Bera from Northern California and one of the questions that was posed that I posed was how do practitioners repay the loans and the CARES Act money in a reasonable time frame without going bankrupt in 18 to 24 months? And to his credit, he admitted he did not know what that would look like. Um, I think what we need to make sure is that as physicians, in order to stay live, in order to stay viable, we really have to advocate for ourselves and um, make sure that that money that should be repaid, you know, as, as a loan or as a as sort of a an advance, that we are given adequate time to pay that back. Um, but I do hear stories, for instance, in Chicago, where I'm from, my younger brother, Eric, practices at Loyola Medical Center. And a lot of the private practice ear, nose, and throat doctors in his area, and um, he's in the same field, Private practitioners have actually closed and declared pan- bankruptcy. Um, very concerning because those are independent, freestanding practices that sort of buffer the larger academic centers from, you know, sort of routine cases or even real emergency cases that can't wait to be transferred. Um, the landscape, I think, will look very different in two years. Um, I think there will be a lot of attrition of private practitioners, both for financial insolvency, but also for simply being done with practice. And I think Congress has to look very, very carefully what a landscape would look like without private practitioners. And I don't think it's something that they would want to see. So we're hoping to see in 24 months that Congress has approved of continuing telehealth visits, reimbursing for telehealth visits, and allowing either financial forgiveness for all those, the PPP and the CARES Act, Lance, uh, grants and loans um, that such that the private practitioners that sort of help support and shore up the system won't go out of business.
0: Very interesting perspective. Thank you, Dr. Gantwerker. Um, now looking a little bit more near term, what is any preparations are you making for a potential second surge of COVID-19 later this year? How do you think that will affect the field if it occurs?
1: It could potentially be eviscerating. Uh, if a second wave comes. But we as a specialty, both in neurosurgery and in spine, need to be prepared for that. And the way that we have been preparing for it is being cautious about how we're spending any advances that we took, um, negotiating uh, loans, or also making sure that you have rent forgiveness from your landlords, hopefully, and being very careful and responsible working closely with your tax professionals and any healthcare attorneys that you work with in order to make sure that there's enough money going forward. Um, For instance, if what I've been told is if you have a line of credit with your bank, don't go paying the whole thing down even if you can. And there are some banks that may close out lines of credit depending on what happens to revenue, What happens to um, obviously the financial market, that they may close it or suspend your line of credit, which could be disastrous. So I've been told not to pay down the entire line of credit. Um, I think fiscal responsibility is the key um, to surviving. A lot of us know what to do in terms of medical things, washing your hands, personal protective equipment, and being responsible in terms of who needs to really come in to see you and who doesn't. But I think Fiscal responsibility is something that doctors, as a rule, don't understand until it becomes an emergency, and I think the the lessons learned from the beginning of the year should be um, financial planning is critical, fiscal responsibility is critical, and above all else, just keep going.
0: That's interesting to hear. And kind of along those veins, um, there's been a lot of discussion during the pandemic about what is considered an essential surgery and what can be postponed, you know, and and done further in the future, possibly. So how do you anticipate that discussion will affect spine surgery? Uh, Do you think it will have any impact on the volumes or, or how surgeons are thinking about procedures in the future?
1: I think those of us that have been operating during the epidemic, during the pandemic, um, have been operating on certain common sense guidelines. But more importantly, a lot of the academic partners um, have been putting out papers that help offer guidelines on safe surgery and indicated surgery during this pandemic. And I think those have to be looked at very carefully and followed. Um, Inevitably, you find some bad actors that are creating indications for doing surgery during this time, uh, and that's very unfortunate. Uh, However, I think by and large, spine surgeons are a very responsible bunch, and going by guidelines such as patients who have maximized their medical treatments uh, and simply cannot exist anymore without doing something about it, those are obviously people who should have surgery emergency neurosurgical procedures, such as craniotomies for subdurals or intracerebral hemorrhages, those obviously should continue. Um, Craniotomies for tumors, those are obviously things that need to be done, but um, sometimes patients can be mitigated somewhat. Those should, however, proceed. Um, More than anything else, we need to constantly, constantly be thinking about exposure and uh, minimizing the risks to patients. And I think most people will know an emergency is an emergency is an emergency. And that doing an elective artificial cervical disc is not an emergency and should not be treated as such. And with good judgment, I think we could potentially mitigate any effects of COVID on our practices, but we all have to do it together and we have to just be responsible.
0: What do you think will become essential technology in orthopedics and spine going forward? I
1: think essential technology is going to be um, a matter of technology that connects patients to surgeons and vice versa. Um, I think interconnectedness between medical records and charts is going to be critical. Really sharing of information going forward um, is going to be very, very important. And in this time of pandemic, we should obviously also look at our residents and fellows um, and didactic learning opportunities for them as well as practicing surgeons. And there are technologies out there that allow us to either um, train virtually or um, play games virtually or do things that allow us to gather CME through meetings or applications or games such that we don't have to expose people unnecessarily both on the training side as well as the practicing side uh, to COVID. However, There will always be patients that need to be taken care of. And a lot of times we do not have time to check a COVID test on them. They still need to be taken care of, but we need to protect ourselves. We have a duty to ourselves, our patients, and our families um, to be responsible and to be careful. But I think technology is going to be about interconnecting patients with doctors, telemedicine, and I think um, hopefully at some point, uh, robotic spine surgery, but I think that's still a ways off in terms of what we really need um, to, to revolutionize surgery.
0: And one more question for you, Dr. Gantworker, before we wrap up: What do you think innovation in spine will look like over the next several years?
1: We're well, going to see a lot of improvements, I think, in artificial disc prosthesis technology and endoscopic spine surgery. Already, there's a lot of exciting techniques and a lot of exciting technology that's coming out. But um, beware of false prophets. Um, There are a lot of things out there that are gimmicky, that don't necessarily make a difference in the patient's lives. Um, I think also um, we will need to have more data when it comes to the performance of of different surgeries that are becoming uh, very popular. Um, For instance, a lot of the large scoliosis, degenerative scoliosis surgeries that are being done now there's still a significant risk in performing those surgeries. And I think even in the most practiced of hands, uh, we need to very carefully look at who's getting those big operations. Um, and I think there's surgeons working on uh, artificial uh, intelligence and deep learning and machine learning about how to predict who's gonna benefit the most from those. And I think we have to listen to those results when they come out and just be honest with ourselves. Um, so I think gathering more data and evidence for, for technology uh, revolution in spine, I think it matters how you interpret the data, but we have to believe the data when it comes out. And um, in terms of endoscopic spine surgery, um, companies have already put out some amazing products, and the problem has come from adoption of that in large hospital health systems. Our current health system did go through a large, very long two-year process looking at endoscopic spine surgery. We finally did settle on some vendors, but getting the hospitals to buy those things, especially in view of the pandemic, has been nigh impossible. So hopefully, um, the technology is already out um, will be adopted, and, and as it gets refined, it will be more widespread. But in the meantime, uh, we have a lot to look forward to, I hope.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Gantwerger. This has been a fascinating discussion, and always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to continuing the conversation in the future.
1: That's great. I had a great time. Hope you enjoyed it.